Now we're good. Let's turn to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we come with hungry hearts. We desire to know you better, to know Jesus better, to know the gift of life and salvation better, to be encouraged in our faith. We live in a world where genuine faith in you, the God of the Bible, the triune God, is under attack all the time. It's being demeaned all the time. And so we need constant encouragement not to give in to the voices of the world. That's so important for our own lives, for the lives of our children and our loved ones. It's important for the world. You say in your scripture that the church is the pillar of the truth. And without us, just common, everyday, unsurprising, ordinary Christians, our communities have no hope. And so bless us this morning that we may be a blessing to others. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. We come to the end of Matthew chapter 3 and the baptism of the Lord Jesus, which is the, the inauguration of his public ministry. It's when his public ministry uh, begins. It's when he is presented by God the Father to the world as Lord and Savior. He's about 30 years old, according to the Gospel of Luke. John, his cousin, has been baptizing down at the Jordan River. We've seen that. We read in verse 13, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When you, when you study the Bible, whether it's, it's, it's in a home study, whether it's in a, a group study, whether it's studying for sermon preparation, what, whatever it is, you want to pay attention to the language of Scripture. With Greek verbs, there is a, a verb called an imperative. And an imperative is a command. You must do this. It just has that kind of force behind it. There are three imperative verbs in this, this brief paragraph. The first one is when Jesus says to John in verse 15, let it be so now. Let it be so now is, is kind of polite sounding. It's kind of almost like an invitation. But Jesus wasn't giving John an invitation. He was commanding him. The other two are in the words, behold, in verse 16 and 17. Behold. 
pay attention to this. See this. Recognize it for what it is. Give it your attention. And that's being given to us as the reader. Jesus gave the first command to John, stop arguing, baptize me. But Matthew, speaking as God is is breathing out the scripture, speaks directly to you and I. Behold, look, pay attention to this. This is important. And so we're going to, to... Look at these verses and see what is the the significance of it. I've titled the sermon to fulfill all righteousness from the phrase that Jesus uses in verse 15. And that's what's happening. So let's see what, what takes place. We begin with Jesus coming from the Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Jesus didn't simply stumble across John at the Jordan. As I said last week, Uh, where John was baptizing was not on the way anywhere. It's not like uh, there's a, in in Napa Valley, California, we used to live in California, as you know, and uh, before our kids were born, we we would go up into the the central coast, the northern coast, San Francisco, and that area, it's beautiful up there. And as you go up into Napa Valley, the first time we were up there, there was a roadside stand called the Cherry Tree. And you could go to the cherry tree, and they had cherry pies, and they had cherry preserves, but they had cherry juice, black cherry juice. You have not lived until you've had cold black cherry juice. It's it's absolutely incredible. But we were just driving by. It was on the way to where we were going. John was not on the way anywhere. Jesus specifically came to John from the Galilee. And if you remember from what we saw last week when John is baptizing, it says in verse 5, then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. It says nothing about the northern area of Galilee. Now certainly there was word being spread up there. People talk as news gets out. But, but Jesus isn't just responding to a rumor. Jesus has a mission to fulfill. And it begins with this moment of baptism. John says to the people in, in Matthew 3.11 that I baptize you with water for repentance. And he preached that the kingdom of heaven was at hand and that the only right response was repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward God. At the same time, John's baptism was not what we would call Christian baptism. John's baptism was not baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John's baptism meant the person was saying, I recognize my sins and I want to repent. I want to turn away from my sins and I want to turn to God. John's baptism was about you and what you felt and what you believed and what you wanted to do. Christian baptism is, is that new believer saying, Jesus Christ has saved me from my sins and I have been eternally joined with him in his death and resurrection. And this is now my life. John's baptism was about what you were doing before God. Christian baptism is about what God has done in you. John's baptism kind of preceded 
the repentance and the life of repentance. Christian baptism follows the work of God and what he has accomplished in the life of the sinner. Jesus comes to John to be baptized, but John has other ideas. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? And the sense here is not that John simply made this statement one time, but that it went on for a little while. It's like there was an argument taking place. Another way to translate the phrase was John was preventing him. John was objecting. Why should I do this? I I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. I think John had two reasons for that. One is that Jesus' baptism was so much greater than John's. John's baptism, you came down to the Jordan River and you heard him preach and you responded with the acknowledgement of your sins and you went down to him and say, I repent of my sins, I turn away from sins and turn back to God. And he would say, okay, I'll baptize you as a public testimony that that's your desire. Baptism itself is not repentance. Baptism is, is the sign that says your intention is to repent. Repentance is this inner work wrought within us. It's a secret thing wrought within us by the, by the power of God, even with John. And so baptism was a way of publicly saying this work has taken place in my life. Jesus was coming to baptize in the Holy Spirit with, and, and fire. Jesus was coming to bring full redemption from sin and judgment upon sinners. John wants Jesus to baptize him in the Holy Spirit. John says, I want eternal life. I want transformation. I want conversion. I want the new covenant to be fully realized in my life. I need to be baptized by you. John, knowing that Jesus is without sin, is probably thinking to himself, and and I'm speculating here. I'm trying to tell you when I speculate, when I guess. I think John is thinking, my baptism can do nothing for you because you've never sinned. But your baptism does everything for me. I think another reason that John is objecting is, is because Jesus himself was infinitely greater than John. John is the forerunner. He's the one who's saying, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, so repent. John humbly acknowledges in, in, uh, in the gospel that he is not worthy to carry Jesus' sandals. That means he's not worthy of being even the lowest slave in Jesus' house. It's not false humility. He spent his entire life preparing for the arrival of the Messiah. And now he has come. John is completely prepared to bow himself before the Lord. He is not at all prepared for the Lord to bow himself before him. So John is very passionate about receiving Jesus' baptism, but he he fails to change the Lord's mind. Jesus says in verse 16, let it be so now. There's the command. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all unrighteousness. And then John consented. So again, let it be so is not an invitation. It's a a command. If John is saying, no, I'm not going to baptize you, you baptize me, 
Jesus finally says, enough. You need to obey. And he explains why. We need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. I I love how Jesus puts it. Jesus doesn't say, let it be so, for thus it is fitting for me to fulfill all unrighteousness. He doesn't say, for thus it is fitting for you to fulfill all righteousness. He says, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. God has a purpose for these two men at this moment in time. John in that role of Old Testament prophet, has identified Jesus as the Messiah. He explains that in John at the close of the baptism. He says, I didn't know who he was, but I saw the Holy Spirit fall and come upon him and rest upon him, and I was told, the one that you see, that's the one. So John, in this moment, as it's all taking place, is, is right there with what God is doing. And his testimony to who Jesus is is crucial for the Old Testament fulfillment. Fulfilling all righteousness obviously didn't mean that Jesus was repenting from sin. Jesus had no sin to repent from. He was and is without sin. He is holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He came to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. He is the Holy One of God. He didn't need to repent of sin because he never did sin. Not even the smallest sin, not even once. But Jesus was giving public testimony to his faithful obedience to the Father. Repentance is not simply turning away from sin, it's turning to God, and it's a public declaration of your faith. Jesus was not saying, I have sinned and I turn away from that sin in order to obey God. In his baptism, he was saying, I have always been righteous, I am righteous, and I will continue without fail to be righteous, And now he says, I'm putting that on public display. I am coming out before the whole world as sinless, as holy, as righteous. Next week, we're going to come to Jesus' temptation, where this claim of his, which is true, is put to the test. Jesus had no sin nature. We'll do a little commercial for next week. Jesus had no sin nature. There was no Adamic nature in him, no fallen nature in in him. You and I carry our temptation within us all the time. It is there within our very DNA. Jesus didn't have that. If Jesus was going to be tempted, it wasn't going to be tempted by his own nature because his nature was holy. He had to be tempted from without, from external to himself, as Adam was. Where Adam failed the test, Jesus passes the test. So Jesus is sinless. Jesus is righteous. Fulfilling all righteousness doesn't mean he's repenting. It means he is confirming his righteousness. The sinless one was baptized alongside sinners. The Puritans were, uh, were, were prone to very flowery speech, very expansive speech. One Puritan pastor says, It's as though as the people went into the Jordan to be washed clean, their sins gathered there, and the sinless Son of God went into the Jordan to take their sins upon himself 
and then go to the cross. And theologically, that's not what's taking place. But if you want to have that in your head as the picture of Jesus, the sinless, innocent, unstained Son of God, going down into the water that has been polluted by sinners, unafraid, for the sake of his love and the sake of their redemption, then hold that in your mind. Well, how does the Father respond to this? There, there is a triune witness. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were open to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Uh, I hope you immediately see that there's an emphasis on the Trinity, on the triune nature of God. We, we saw this... In Matthew chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Joseph to speak to him and says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. You have the Trinity there. Here you have another clear statement. The Son of God being baptized, the Spirit of God coming upon him, and the Father speaking from heaven. We don't know how many people were standing there in the riverbank. We, we know that a, a huge area, uh, relatively speaking, had come to John over time. We don't know how many were there on any given day. There may have been a large crowd. There may have been just a handful. It might have just been John and Jesus. We don't know. But we know that there were appropriate witnesses to Jesus' baptism because God witnessed it. The Father witnessed it, and the Holy Spirit witnessed it. And Jesus, as the eternal word, remember, as as the, the God-man, Jesus, is fully God and fully man. And as fully God, he is the witness of his own baptism. The heavens open up, which is often a picture of revelation. In Ezekiel chapter 1, it says this, In the thirtieth year, in the fourth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chebar Canal, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. The heavens opening up is a, a visual image of God saying, I'm going to speak to you. It, it, isn't it interesting that in Hebrews chapter 1, we read that in the past, long ago, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets in other ways at many times. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. One last, complete, final, perfected revelation. The heavens open up, I think, to emphasize that revelation. The Bible tells us in order for a matter to be established, there have to be Two or three witnesses. The law requires two or three witnesses to convict somebody of murder. Paul says that elders can only be charged with wrongdoing if there are two or three witnesses. Jesus himself said that when we deal with one another on issues of sin, we must establish the matter through two or three witnesses. So we have two or three witnesses to Jesus' baptism. We have the Father. We have the Holy Spirit. 
and we have John the baptizer. How do we know that Jesus was baptized and that his righteousness was put on display and declared to all creation? We have witnesses. We have witnesses. And and those witnesses have given us written proof of their testimony. This is enough to get you convicted in a court of law today. Multiple witnesses with written records. That's evidence. The Father has been kind to us and given us that. The Holy Spirit comes to rest upon Jesus. Fulfilling Isaiah 42.1. Behold my spirit whom I, I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. The Father himself speaks and and quotes Psalm 2, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. The Holy Spirit commissions Jesus, the Father speaks affirmation and approval in this tremendous moment. What I find to be so interesting is God the Father quotes scripture. Jesus quotes scripture a lot. The Holy Spirit, as he is breathing out the New Testament scriptures, quotes the Old Testament a lot. But we have now God the Father speaking from heaven, quoting scripture. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. How much value does God place on his own word? He quotes it. He gave it. His word is subject to him. He values it so highly, he uses it. He cites it because it is so perfectly true. Now, what's the point of this testimony from God the Father? This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Well, there's another time in the Gospels when the Father says this, and it's in Matthew chapter 17. Jesus went up on the mountain. He took Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So Jesus is transfigured into his eternally glorified state before that glorification has taken place. That's how Peter, James, and John see him. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. So Moses, the giver of the law, Elijah, the prophet of prophets. The law and the prophets are there bearing testimony. You might remember in Romans chapter 3, it says, Now the righteousness of God apart from the law has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, by Moses and Elijah. This is really significant that they're there. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter thinks he understands what's happening. Here are the, the two historical figures of 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 Judaism, Moses and Elijah with Jesus, who is the latest prophet. And Peter says they must be equal in importance. And he is so mistaken. 
He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. This is the glory of God. And a voice from the cloud said, this one, pointing, this one is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. That's a statement that is never applied to Moses or Elijah and could never be. Listen to him. So Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, are important parts of God's revelation, but his revelation came to perfection and completion in Jesus. And he is to have our attention. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. I say, good for them. They had the wisdom to be terrified by the glory of God and the audible voice of the Father. And I have to think that James and John were wishing that Peter would just shut up sometimes. Why don't you just be quiet? Why don't you not feel free to say everything that comes into your mind? But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus. Who has the right to command? It's Jesus. Who must we obey? Jesus. Who do we trust and count on and rely on? It's Jesus. And so with the Father's affirmation at his baptism, Jesus is presented to the people of Israel and to the entire world as the beloved Son of God in whom God is well pleased as our Lord and Savior. So as we think about bringing this home, the people of the world are without excuse. Those who put their faith in Jesus are blessed eternally. Those who doubt him and rebel against him do so at their own peril. Those who reject him face the consequences of their sin. They face the consequences of, of their own rebellion. The baptism of Jesus, quiet as it was, happening in this little corner of, of Israel that most people didn't go to, in a land that most people didn't go to, marks the beginning of his public ministry. At the time, even the people standing on the bank, we don't know if they saw the heavens opened up. We don't know if they saw the Spirit as a dove. We don't know if they heard the voice of God. We know John did. We know Jesus did, but we don't know if anybody else did. To everybody else, it may have just been another baptism. There may have been nothing that stood out to it or or, or from it. But from the point of view of heaven, looking down at the entirety of human history in this moment, it stands out as momentous, filled with eternal meaning. And it should be that way for us too. There's so much that can be said about being in Christ. Christians have redemption from the wrath of God. We've received eternal life. Our sins are forgiven. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We steadily grow in holiness. We have a new loyalty, a new allegiance to a new kingdom ruled by King Jesus. With the exception of those who are alive when Jesus returns, all Christians die physically, but their spirits immediately go to be with him And one day they will be raised, the same body that is put in the ground or put in the crematory or falls into the water or is eaten by beasts is raised from the dead. Your body, just as it is today, but immortal, imperishable, glorified. You will look like you would have been if Adam hadn't hadn't sinned. So if you're short and want to be tall, 
Sorry. If you're tall and want to be short, sorry. No marks of sin, though, upon your body. All of that is undone. Christians can experience the peace that passes all understanding. We are members of the body of Christ. We have right relationship with our Creator. And, and more than this, and this is where, where this, this passage comes in, I believe, only Christians can rightly worship God. Only Christians can respond to, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Nobody else can rightly worship God. Jesus said, if you reject the Son, you reject the Father too. Somebody can't say, but I'm well-meaning, I'm sincere. I don't believe that Jesus is God, but I worship God. You don't worship God. You worship a false God. Jesus says so. Only Christians can call upon the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit in prayer, which is worship. As we sang this morning, only Christians from the depths of their heart and being can sing, Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall. We'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Only Christians can can sing, Be this while life is mine, my sacred song divine. May Jesus Christ be praised. Be this the eternal song through all the ages long. May Jesus Christ be praised. Only Christians can worship rightly. We worship him by hearing and studying and believing and obeying his word. We worship by remembering what Jesus did for us in communion. We worship him by proclaiming the gospel. We worship him by raising our children in a home lit by the light of Christ. We worship him by confessing our sin and longing for our holiness and by setting our minds on the things that are above and by longing for his return. And sometimes we even worship singing by singing. But that's a small part. As you work, as you're around your children or your grandchildren or your parents or your grandparents or your brothers or your sisters, as you live as a citizen, all of that is worship. When it is done in faith with a regard for the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. And so as you go today, go with a determination to worship in every aspect. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to bring these things home to us and to our heart, continue to bring us back to these passages of Scripture. Help us to continue to grow. Help us to continue to humble ourselves before you and to receive the fullness of the blessing of what it means to be in Christ. And even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. And in your holy name we pray. Amen.